0: to another episode of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, this is our 93rd, 93rd podcast. It's amazing when you kind of look, uh, Podbean, who we, I do this through. They, they produce all kinds of data and statistics and things. And it's amazing. They'll be, I can get 80 uh, listens on one day and then literally go down to four or two the next. It's it's absolutely amazing and when you look at the demographics uh, there are a lot of people that listen in occupied America you know New York, Massachusetts, a little bit in California, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan you know place that are blue states which are essentially occupied America um, it's, it's amazing. And, but I do get also a lot in free America, you know, especially, you know, in the area I'm located, Kansas, Missouri, Texas, Oklahoma, all that. So it's very, very interesting watching that though. And there are some from foreign countries, uh, every, practically every foreign country you can imagine in, in Europe, um, at one time or another has at least one or two people listen. So it's amazing how, uh how that all looks at. When you look at that data, it's absolutely fascinating sometimes. It doesn't mean anything, but it is it is fascinating. Okay, as you know, this podcast is essentially in three parts, which is, we talk a little bit about 2A. The first part is about 2A and political things that affect the Second Amendment. The second part is usually about the gun culture, gun creators and gun influencers and Uh, all of that kind of stuff. And the third part, which is my favorite, is questions and answers, questions and answers. And uh, it's been about two weeks since we've done a podcast. So some of this stuff has been uh, kind of stacking up. First, let me start off with um, that vile, corrupt, nasty creature named Nancy Pelosi. She was talking about of course, anybody who doesn't agree with her, as she was essentially talking about the enemy within, and the enemy within is here, and it's in their chamber, and all that. You know what? She is a liar. She is a fraud. She is a crazy old hag. She doesn't understand, A, how democracy works, and B, the fact that people who disagree with her are not are not taken to be the, the complete enemy. It, it just shows you the level of fear and how that fear is still playing into how the Congress acts. Um, that Capitol thing, you know, as bad as it was, and nobody wants to see a policeman hit in the side of the head who dies of his injuries. Nobody wanted to see that poor woman who is an Air Force veteran who was murdered by a Capitol policeman. It was either a Capitol policeman or a, uh, a Secret Service agent, but he, he came out and just, you know, shot her and murdered her. So... Nobody likes to see that kind of, those types of things go on. I also do believe that there were some Antifa people that, that they've now identified from pictures who, were, who had infiltrated the crowd and were behind at least some of, all, some of what you saw. So anyway, but they're in fear. And, you know, one of the biggest unreported stories is how many Congress people, and, and I'm sure this covers both sides of the aisle because the Democrats, many of them are just hypocrites, are carrying firearms. I mean, I'm sure, and I don't think it's a large percentage, I would guess, I would say 15% probably carry firearms. And that probably comes out to maybe 50 or 60 of them, you know, across each aisle. Um, So it's, it's it's amazing how the Second Amendment is good for me, but not for thee, is kind of how they look at it. And uh, I don't think that they are going to basically be able to enact a lot of sweeping gun control. I mean, yeah, everybody's all upset. The, The YouTubers are all upset about some bill that was introduced in the House. It's got all these draconian provisions. You know, if you get a divorce your ex has to approve whether or not you can own a gun in the future. None of that is constitutional. None of this stuff that they're all spinning up about is constitutional and everybody knows it. And uh, you know the fact of the matter is it's, it's just not gonna stand up. So uh, I, I don't want to spin out of control on any of that because it's not a serious bill. It's just one of those bills that people introduce uh, to make a stand. So that's really all I want to talk about about politics and and two A, you know, it is what you see, you know, the uniparty, the party establishments which are intermingled and inter intertwined, you know, they're getting back to normal, they're happy, they're happy. Fox News is happy, their 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 little talking heads can get on there and and talk smack about Biden the way they did about Obama. I mean, this just feels like. Five or six years ago, where oh Barack Obama said this and da 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 da, you know, and you know they're pointing out the mistakes, and yet and, and and of course with Barack Obama there were boo mistakes. There's even more with Joe Biden. The first first day in office, he throws about fifty thousand people out of work with the Keystone the Keystone pipeline shutting it down. But um, you know this is just like that, and that's their comfort zone. That's where they're happy being and they didn't like having to defend the things that donald trump was doing which were in the best interest of the nation but they didn't like having to defend that they didn't like having to defend the orange man who who tweeted and 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 all the rest of this this is their comfort zone this is where they want to be and this is why i really don't watch fox news anymore i mean they're i'm i'm done with them they're you know they're just part of this media left-wing media education entertainment axis and i do mean axis which is just out there portraying all this to you they don't talk about real people they don't talk about real people at all and um, it's really a shame it's really an absolute shame um it's it's all theater and unfortunately it's being force-fed to us um I think Newsmax and One America News are much better places to watch if you're going to watch news. The other thing that needs to die, of course, is this 24-7 news cycle. Everything is, you know, news, and and, the, and it helps them with their drumbeat, which we've talked about before, the, the drumbeat of whatever issue they want to go after. So, essentially, you know, that that is something that we got to... They won't stop, so we have to stop them, and we stop them by by not watching. Stop watching and stop them. That should actually be a slogan. That's actually a pretty good slogan. Stop watching, stop them, and maybe they'll go to some, you know, more responsible reporting and and everything else. Uh, the only last thing I'd say: there's some poor congresswoman. Uh, I think her last name is Green. I think she's from Georgia. They've resurrected some old Facebook posts where she said um, what was it that she thought I, I, she thought some of these mass shootings might have been staged And you know that's that's something that you know a lot of people say that when that happens. Oh this is staged because the emotion is, oh there's been a mass shooting. of course, the Democrat media entertainment axis. Uh, blames it on guns this is a gun problem if we didn't have guns we wouldn't have this problem they refuse to look at the larger social context of who's raising children do children get enough supervision are the schools secure enough is school security really taken seriously Um, what kind of how are things affecting uh, young people such as violent video games movies and all this other stuff that's in culture. They won't look at any of that. They also won't look at the lack of supervision in schools, um, the lack of teacher supervision, the lack of parental supervision at home. They won't look at any of that, but they will blame it on guns. So there's a reaction on the other side to say, well, this is all phony. It's, it's an emotional reaction, but you shouldn't hold that against people. If we held against the Democrats, if they were held to the same standard, none of them would be in office. Because Democrats say crazy stuff. Crazy, crazy stuff. AOC and her cow farts. And, and some of the rest of the nonsense that they spew. It's it's like the old uh, William F. Buckley quote. I won't insult your intelligence by actual, actually uh, asking you whether you believe what you just said. And I mean, you know, they don't. They don't believe 90% of the stuff they say, so I think I think other people should do that. But this is a, yet another reason. Stay off of social media. And if you can't do that, and some of us can't do that, you know, I keep track of relatives and everything on social media, so I can't just close my account. Never post something when you're hot under the collar. Just wait, and sometimes just turn it off. <clears throat> it's very easy to unfollow people You can still remain friends with them. Oh, I'm still Facebook friends, but you unfollow them. Uh, That's what I've done with several people, you know, uh, people who I didn't know, you know, old school, schoolmates, you know, from, from years ago, Uh, you know, it's kind of fun to keep in touch with them. But, you know, when they start posting pro-democratic shit that shows up on my timeline, I'm like, I'm sorry, you're now unfollowed. And if they don't like that, then I can unfriend them. So... There, there is an escalation that you can do with people who you don't want to agree with. So anyway, that's the, um, that's the political talk there. Let's go into something uh, a little more interesting, the ammo situation. And of course, I broke my own rule. I, I think gun forums, unless you're using them to get straight information, gun forums are mentally retarded. And I know that's not a popular word anymore, but that's what they are. Mental defectives uh, haunt those things. And some of them are actually probably good gun people and all this. But it's it's amazing how they refuse to even look at the beginning of reality. And one of them, a guy honestly posted, hey, what's up with ammo? If if they're producing all of this ammo that they say, because this is after we've had a couple of videos now on YouTube uh, from ammo manufacturers, one from Hornaday and one from the CCI Federal Remington Consortium or, or Empire or whatever it is, aren't saying, hey, we're, we're cranking this stuff out like crazy and, you know, the problem is you people are just buying it more faster than we can make it. Okay, I, I can accept that <clears throat> if it were true, but it's not. It's not true. And, and there's empirical evidence out there. Um, essentially, uh, number one is, if it's panic buying, how does that raise a case of 9mm Wolf ammo to 600 well, almost $700 for 1,000 rounds? How does that happen? Because theoretically, Wolf ammo is Wolf ammo, and they bring it in by the boatload, and they sell it. I can understand if it's all sold out. But the problem is they're jacking up the prices and they're restricting availability. And that's where the key comes in. I I posted on a very well-known gun board when a guy asked, hey, what's up? And I said, well, it's it's just greed and avarice. I mean, if you can make a product and you have a, I don't know, I'll just throw out numbers, 20% margin. I don't know what the margin on ammo is, but I imagine it's... It's probably greater than that, but we'll just say 20%. If I can make 20% margin on it as profit, hey, that's that's a good product. I can make that product, and I can you know do all kinds of good things. That's a good product to make, good product to sell. But if I can get a 150% margin on it, uh, I'm I'm willing to do that. And if that means I kind of kind of throttle back production. Well, then that's fine, too, because I'm still making tons of money and I'm not having to work as hard, buy as many raw materials and all the rest of it. And that's really what is happening. Every I go to large gun shops, small gun shops, box store, any place that sells ammo, I go. And one of the questions I always ask, and and of course, in some of the larger stores, you don't know, unless you get an owner or a general manager, you don't really know the the deal. And I just say, man, are you, you know, I I always kind of, you know, play like I'm Mr. Naive. Wow. You know, this ammo, I would have thought that they would have had it all squared away and, and back in the shelves by now. And, you know, wow, are you guys just not getting the ammo like you used to? And the uniform answer I get to a question that's phrased like that is, no, we are not getting ammo the way we used to. And when we do, it obviously sells out. But if they were getting ammo at the same rate they were or a greater rate, which is what these companies claim they're making, uh, you know, hey, a truck would show up on Monday, it would be loaded with ammo, they'd put it out, the shelves would be brim full, and then people would come in and buy it like crazy. The way you saw toilet paper being bought up at the beginning of the pandemic, that was panic buying, you know, that was, that was the panic buying that made toilet paper very scarce was every time people saw it, they, they grabbed it. Okay. But there were times when you could go in and they had plenty of toilet paper, but they were rationing it or, or whatever else. And it would still sell out, but they were still getting it in ammunition. They're just not getting in you know, I see some, there's one large store and they just got into a, a big shipment. Uh, you know, I don't know how many rounds were totally in the shipment. They, they won't tell you these things. But it was a 40 Smith & Wesson and I'm like, well, that's not that popular caliber anymore. You know, it used to be kind of popular, but, you know, really, 9mm has completely blown the doors off 40 Smith & Wesson. So, I'm just wondering, where's the 9mm? If they're making it, where is it? We should be seeing boxes and boxes on the shelf and you could go in the day they unload and stock the shelves and hey there's there's 9 mm all over the place and then com- it's completely gone by the afternoon. That is panic buying. That is not what we're seeing. That is not what's being told to me by people who I know personally who are not bullshitting me, you know. And so you have that then we also have the other strange situation of hey there's no primers there's nothing they're not releasing primers so the primers are all done primers primers are over so if you're like me in a hand loader when I run out of primers I'm out of primers there's nothing there we used to be able to buy wolf primers and I can't understand why we can't buy primers from some of these factories in the former eastern block and you know why can't these guys make? Hey, if you don't want to make ammo, fine. Crank out primers. The Americans will buy them. They'll buy them like crazy. Um, why are we not seeing primers being made by the Eastern Bloc countries and and shipped in? I don't know. Um, there are ammo factories in, you know, probably Mexico. You could get get some. I don't know about Central America, but certainly South America. There's even government plants. You can go there and say, hey. I'll buy two million rounds of nine-millimeter FMJ from you. Um, there's, there's all these things that could happen that are not happening, that you would think that you would think that a year into it would be happening. Hey, I understand the initial rush, and we did have a perfect storm, which is continuing. The perfect storm was, hey, we have a pandemic, this is really bad. Then we have all the unrest, starting with the killing of George Floyd and going through the summer and. You know, turning it into one of those summer of 68, you know, which was, is what all the liberals wanted. You know, they just want the summer of riots. Well, now they've had that. So now we also have the Capitol riot. So, or protest is really what it is. It's not really a riot. But we have that. So everybody's still buying ammo. And, that, and of course, the election of, of you know, sleepy Joe Biden... You know, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Honesty and Integrity in Government, as his kid is influence peddling and making millions of dollars. <coughs> we have those guys. Sorry for the cough, but I just want to keep going. We have those guys, and that causes people to panic. By they said, this guy's going to make all guns illegal. Every Every magazine is now going to be an NFA item, and all the all the rest of this nonsense. So. This has been a perfect storm, I understand that, but there are ways that, that capacity, excess capacity in other places could be used to fill the gap, and it's just not happening. Instead, we get the whiny YouTube videos of, I'm tired of hate mail. Well, then, produce more ammo. Go create at least a limited um, a joint venture with a few other companies. Hey, nobody really cares at this point. People are willing to buy tull ammo. People are willing to buy it. And you know what? When that stuff is available, they're obviously still bringing it in. I just bought uh, some Tull ammo for my military match rifle shooting. And essentially, hey, it was $14 a box of 20, which, you know, hey, for 762 by 54 r well, that's fair. That's that's about what I was paying at Walmart when you add in tax. So um, there you go. Of course, Walmart won't handle it anymore, but uh, that's that's another a whole nother deal. So the ammo, but God, I posted, and said, hey, it's greed. And I laid out hey, it's, you know, we're not seeing panic buying. We're seeing a restriction of supply. Something quite different than panic buying. What we're seeing is a restriction of supply to drive up the price to the absolute upper limit that people will pay. And people will pay about 80, apparently about 80 cents to a dollar around for brass 556. They'll probably pay, well, we know they'll pay 70 cents a round because it's about 600 to 700 bucks for a case of 9mm, and that's 1,000 rounds. So that just, without shipping or any of the other goodies that get added onto that, um, that's that's 70 cents a round right there. Just boom, right there. So people are obviously willing to pay that much. uh, For how long, I don't know. What is the pernicious effect this has on the shooting sports? oh everybody does everybody does um i have a good friend who started hunting season with his seven millimeter remington magnum and he had nine rounds i mean because this guy's not a prepper he's not he's a hunter he's a fud a hunter and fuds usually don't keep and fud calibers usually people don't store a thousand rounds of seven millimeter magnum you don't buy it by the case same thing with like you know 270 Winchester. These are all nice calibers and they're in nice rifles, but they're designed for hunting. The FUDs like them. And I don't use FUDs as a derogatory thing. I kind of use it as a a way to say hunters, casual shooters together. But, you know, FUD calibers, they don't don't chamber um, high-use firearms like precision rifles, long-range target rifles, and a lot of things. Don't get chambered in these because they haven't optimized the barrel twist and the ammunition to really get the to really get the the long range. I, I think my friend would be shocked, and I've never told him this, but I'm sure my six millimeter my six point five Creedmoor is a much better long range gun than his seven millimeter Magnum because his understanding of ballistics is different than mine. And, uh, you know, he, he won't, I mean, if he tried to shoot his at a thousand yards, he's not going to hit anything. tell you that right now, even with the, the very nice scope, it's not a target scope. So it's one of those ones, it's it's a, a very high end European scope, but you know, you need to take the cap off and I think you need a dime or something to, to move it clicks. I mean, it's not designed for that type of shooting. And so a lot of people don't understand that, but also. That ammunition doesn't get that kind of use. People don't buy it by the case. But that stuff is completely dried up unless somebody's had it on the shelf. Um, We also know that they've, um, you know, they've maximized trying to produce the ammunition they are producing is stuff they know they're going to sell right away which is 5.56 and 9mm because you're not going to make You're not going to waste your production line making 257 Roberts when you know it's going to sit there for two years on the shelf. You do 9mm, 7.62 NATO, or 5.56, and it's going to fly right off the shelf because that's what the market is demanding right now. So uh, we actually have a question about this a little later on. But yeah, if you have a boutique caliber and you don't have any ammo for it, you you may be in for a wait. You shoot... uh, um, you know, well, you know, you can just add a whole bunch. You could just name any FUD caliber that's not really a military caliber. And, you know, they, in, in the ammo manufacturer's defense, a lot of that stuff they just do as a seasonal run. You know, hey, they only need so much 30-40 crag. They know they're not going to sell that much of it. So they produce it for about a month. They produce all they need for a year because they know, how, they know the sell rate of that ammunition. So they don't, they don't produce it. For 12 months out of the year, they produce it for one or two months out of the year, and that's the run. They have it. When that basically sells out, they tool up again and produce some more. So, there you are. That's the ammo thing. We are being manipulated. We are being dealt dirty by gougers, by producers that aren't producing And by people who are choking off our primer supply hey at least if if you're not going to produce the ammo at least release some primers so the rest of us can get some but i'm telling you we're going to be we're going to be in real trouble on that um if my my estimate which is based on what people have told me is that this is going to last another year the major manufacturers say that and it's going to last beyond that but for nine millimeter and 5.56 five, they think they're about a year behind so it's going to take them another year to catch up then they can start and then when they sustain that they can start going back into the boutique calibers you know the smaller calibers the FUD calibers whatever you want to call them obsolete military rifle calibers are another another uh, um, part of that if you need 8 millimeter Mauser 8 millimeter Lebel or 7x57 Mauser I wouldn't count on seeing it soon Um, it may be it may be two years before you actually see it to get back to 2019 which may never happen price wise but at least availability wise we may get in there in two years and that's kinda my thing I was hoping it would be six months I was hoping that by June the madness would have been over with but I'm not really sure and that's without any regulatory interference you know, I think, I think even the stupidest liberal, you know, the stupidest of the stupid probably sees how vulnerable and, and how, you know, if you can choke off the ammo supply, guns aren't a real factor, you know, because then everybody's going to stop using them and hoard onto what they have. Um, all that's going to do is kill the sport, and it's starting to have adverse effects on it right now. That's the ammo situation. Okay, talking about some gun culture content, and I hate, I used to, I used to talk about Enrage TV all the time, um, just because they, they, they say and do things that, that make me <laughs> uncomfortable, you know, they just, they do, they do silly things. You know, their their question and answer things used to be pretty good when they had the two guys there. You know, they had the Carl Carsada and the Ian McCollum there. And they used to be pretty good. I mean, it, you kind of had two perspectives. And, yeah, you know, I, I didn't, a lot of times they didn't have answers that I particularly thought were well thought out or I agreed with. But it was at least a lot more entertaining. Now they've obviously gone their separate ways for one reason or another. And uh, part of that reason has to be that. You know schedules and all this but they're, they're now doing separate q and a's on their on their respective channels well this last one in range did had the the person he brought in to do the q and a with him was tactic cool girlfriend who looks to be an early 20s goth who you know and that's what it is she's she dresses like a goth and you know, she's wearing a mask to hide her identity because she doesn't really want people to know who she is. And and frankly, I, I watch it and I'm like, okay, I'm game. You know, maybe this person knows something about guns or likes guns or whatever. And, you know, it's it's fine. It's, it's fine. But they started getting into this bashing of the gun culture using some ridiculous stereotypes, you know, that, you know that you if you're a new gun buyer you walk into a gun shop you're going to get treated like garbage and you know they they they're condescending to women and try to sell them little J-frame 357s and you know if that was ever even really true it hasn't been true in at least 30 years um and I know this because my wife goes into gun shops. She gets better treatment than I do, and she's not really a gun person. <laughs> one, time, one time I went in and I looked at a, uh, I was looking at a German Luger. This was back when they were affordable. And uh, the guy quoted me one price, and so then I wander away and I start looking at other stuff. Well, my wife, he did not know we came in as a couple. She came in and she, she really saw me looking at it, so she went up there and started inquiring about it. And they sold it to her for 100 bucks less. And she's not a gun person, <laughs> so so the uh, the postulation that people get treated like garbage in gun shops just simply isn't true. And this has been time and time again. This is kind of stuff has happened. She's been treated very well, and she likes a lot of. She's like, yeah, let's go to that gun shop. They're so nice, and uh, you know, they, they, most gun shops today are very very nice. They're very very accommodating to women and new shooters, and. You know, hey, I'm sorry, Carl Carsada and Tactical Girlfriend. You know, everybody realizes that shooting is not a race-based or ethnic-based anything. I have all kinds of friends who are into shooting but aren't of the same ethnic, racial, or or any other kind of groups. And maybe they don't. Maybe they don't have any friends like that, but, but, um, you know... to think that it's just a monolithic white guy and of course they they want to insert boomer in there somehow but anyway that's that's somehow they, they insinuate it they don't really want to say it because they don't want the boomers to turn off their <laughs> turn off their dopey youtube channel anyway that's that's what's going on there all right the last thing I want to talk about before we go into q a is when I was a kid, Okay, revolvers were, were king, and the biggest revolver guys were Skelton, uh, to a degree, Elmer Keith. Although he was getting pretty much up there, and, and really, when I started following, I think about a year or two later, Elmer Keith had a uh, had a massive stroke and was was essentially bedridden and and uh, basically basically done. But one of the biggest guys was a guy named Bill Jordan, the the border patrol guy, and he wrote a book called No Second Place Winner, which everybody had to have. So, like everybody else, um, I sent away and and got the book. And it was a, it's a thrilling book. I mean, if you like kind of hero, the heroic version of, of guns and and um, you know those kind of border patrol guys that that were really um, kind of at the forefront of the printed gun culture back in those days, because that's all it was. It was pretty interesting, pretty interesting. Well, then it was some years after that, I kind of, I've, I've heard rumors, you know, it's kind of been mentioned again on internet forums and a few things, never in print, that Bill Jordan had a negligent discharge when he was a border patrolman and killed another border patrol agent. And, you know, I was really shocked by that i'm i'm first of all i'm thinking how could this possibly be and so i started to kind of over the years i've kind of investigated it and some people say yes definitely happened he was the guy and other people say no it never happened it was just bs and i always kind of put them into two camps people who liked him and maybe people who didn't you know that's that's kind of how i put it but here's what i've discovered and here is the strange case of bill jordan um, you know, of course, he, his background, he was Border Patrol guy, um, Marine Corps reservist, served in World War II in Korea, was the guy who basically convinced Smith & Wesson to bring out a Magnum version of their combat masterpiece revolver, which was then christened the Model 19, because it was the size of a 38 Special Duty revolver, you know, scaled down, it was smaller than the N-frames, um, Smith & Wesson M-frames. Um, and it was a very very nice nice gun this was before the Colt Python came out so there was no mid frame so you kind of went yeah kind of had big frames and smaller frames so it came out on a K frame and it looked just like the uh, combat masterpiece model 15 38 special but it was chambered for 357 Magnum and he was a guy who basically pushed them to do that and they did it and he was given one of the first guns in 1955 As it turns out, the Model 19 is really not that great of a gun in some ways. If you feed it a steady diet of Magnums, at least in the early models, um, they would tend to to loosen up. It was designed, his his whole thing was, at that point, uh, the only people who really hand-loaded in large quantities were were police departments, and they would hand-load sheriff's departments they would handload 38 special wad cutter ammunition that's what you practiced and qualified with and then you would carry the magnums on duty magnum loads in your 357 on duty uh, a terrible idea because you should train as you fight but a terrible idea but back in those days it was it was accepted practice so the story was he was in the San Ysidro border patrol station and they were looking over the model this is in 1956 so he's had the gun probably less than a year he's showing it to people he unloads it they dry fire it they handle it they do all those things that gun people do and then he it somehow whether he did it or somebody else did it it was reloaded and put back in a desk drawer and then later he pulled it out of the drawer and was dry firing, wanted to dry fire at a spot on the wall, but unfortunately the wall was very thin and on the other side of the wall was another agent's head. So, the gun goes off, the bullet goes through the wall, hits the guy in the head, they take him to the hospital, he dies. Apparently, the uh, whoever pulled the trigger, whether it was the Bill Jordan we know or someone else, was so upset that they actually had to be sedated on the scene and and taken back to their house because they were so upset because they killed somebody. Now here's, here's what we know. A lot of people say it was Bill Jordan, the guy who became the gun writer, and the guy who became the NRA field rep guy, the guy who was on What's My Line, the guy who could quick draw and hit aspirin tablets, the guy who had giant hands that looked like baseball mitts, the guy who was born in 1911, died in 1998, wrote no second place winner was also one at one time wrote uh, the magazine column in Guns and Ammo, Jordan on handguns, and was really the guy who really did a lot of back and forth revolver versus auto, you know those those endless boring articles revolver versus auto where he'd take one side and somebody else take the other, and on and on and on. Wrote a lot of things. Okay, so. I managed to nobody really will say it was him but there are two pieces of evidence that could point towards him the first piece of evidence is that there was a magazine article which not a magazine article I'm sorry newspaper article which basically chronic chronicled the incident and it was on newspapers.com, and it said the uh, the trooper who fired the the the, uh, the round was a William Jordan and they gave his age, and they gave his age is like 44. Uh, Bill Jordan was actually 45, closer to 46 at the time. The Bill Jordan we know is the gun writer. So that, that doesn't quite match up. Then there was another, um, it was basically a, an open kind of letter that um, that the border patrolman who was killed had a 13 year old daughter. Later in life she wrote a letter saying, hey um, my father never got to see me walk down the aisle or, or graduate from college or anything. And she said, I don't hate, I don't hate Bill Jordan, you know, blah, blah, blah. So whether that letter is actually true or, or you know, because it's, it's, I've not seen the original, have no way to attribute it to the original author, uh, who was this, allegedly this man's child. And she would have been born about 1943. So she's getting up there if she's, if she's still alive. So those are the two that point and say it was, was him. Uh, the evidence on the other side is kind of intriguing. Number one, in the newspaper article, they have his age is wrong. And usually newspaper articles get that right. I mean, I'm just saying, they just get that right. So that leads me to, to believe that maybe there was another guy with the same name in the Border Patrol at the same time. And you say, well, that's pretty weird. You know, I don't know that could happen. Hey, I work with two guys who have exactly the same name. They work in first name and last name. their middle initials are different. but they, they work in adjacent departments and it's an endless source of confusion. They're always getting each other's emails and, and all kinds of other things So the, and these two guys are within two years of each other. So it's entirely possible that there was another William Jordan and that's the guy who pulled the trigger and maybe this other the Bill Jordan was was the gunwriter was completely innocent another reason that I think this could be is the um, as you read different accounts and some of these are just transcribed so you can't one said that it was a Colt new service revolver okay which in 38 special I don't know they ever made them in 357 but they certainly made them in 38 special Uh, if you pick it up and look at it you can't really tell if it's loaded or not you can't see behind the recoil shield you know that the rims of the brass cartridge which you which you really kind of can um, in, in a uh, in a k-frame you know you can you can see when I when I pick up a revolver the first thing I look at is while I'm reaching to open the cylinder I'm looking at the back of the cylinder to see if I can see the brass rims or some some indication. sometimes they have rebated chambers and it makes it harder to see but you can you can usually get an indication and every revolver person I know does the same thing I would assume that the same thing would would be the gun writer Bill Jordan would have done the same thing and if he was actually showing the model 19 to people well then they completely misreported the type of gun it was because in the model 19 it would be easier to do that okay another piece of of evidence would be um, one of the things I say, well, you know, he was kind of a high-ranking guy. He had he had um, friends in high places. And so they probably just swept this under the rug. Well, I'm sorry, you can't sweep negligent homicide under the rug. Somebody would have been prosecuted for that. Somebody would have been held accountable for that. You can't just say, oh man, sorry, this is an accident. Um, you know, G. willikers, we'll just brush it off. Even in 1956, there would have been some charges there would have been some legal process. somebody would have been charged, and that's a that's a face it that's a a poster boy textbook case of negligent homicide right there you know so I doubt that even if he had if he had been convicted, he would have continued with the border patrol if he would have been hired by the NRA to be their field rep, if he would have been on what's my line if he would have written a book. And later in his life, when I started following him, I know he did write one article where he's talking about bird hunting, and he was talking about how you have to be careful with shotguns, and he related that, you know, he he saw he was party to an incident where, you know, somebody was shooting at birds and didn't understand and and didn't see the hunters that were actually downrange, and peppered those guys, peppered some hunters downrange, peppered a guy downrange with his shot. Those sorts of things can happen, bird hunting. Remember Dick Cheney, the the guy he kinda of blasted, you know, he peppered him with shot, you know. And he had at the end of the article admitted that he was the guy who pulled the trigger. He was the guy who who uh, who actually did that. Now, if he if he's gonna write about gun safety, I I suppose I think he would have avoided that subject entirely had he negligently killed someone <laughs> in nineteen fifty six. That somehow, 20 or 25 years later, he's writing an article about about peppering someone. I think I don't think he would have done that. Also, he wrote you know humorous articles about you know again this was a different time, so accidental discharges were a different thing then. So he would write about yeah you know the guy's in the bathroom and um, he's taking his pants down and and his gun starts to fall out so he grabs it and it fires and it destroys a toilet or somebody's playing with a gun and they dry fire at the chief's locker. It's loaded. They blow a hole in it right through the chief's dress uniform, which if you've ever been in the military or the, the police dress uniforms are expensive. They're hard to set up. They're a pain. So you're not really going to hit. There is a humorous aspect to blowing a hole in it None of this is funny these days. None of this would be considered to be funny, but it was funny in those days. He So he would tell funny stories about accidental discharges. Now, if you had an accidental discharge and hit a guy in the head who was one of your co workers, I don't think you would have been writing those stories. So that's what leads me to believe that this was not the same Bill Jordan. That, you know, two people can have the f- same first and last name in the organization. And, it, you know, Bill Jordan is not a uncommon name but it's not a very common name the guys I work with I won't give their name I won't give the name here but you know they have a a name which is it's not common it's not uncommon and you know that's that's just the way that goes William is a very common first name Um, I mean I've had people my uncle was William so I mean I've known a lot of people named William or Bill and uh, Jordan is just not that uncommon of a last name you know it's an old english name just like a lot of things so i i don't really think he did it but it's always, it's out there the myth or it's the veiled truth is out there if it is true if it is true i'm 60 40 i'm 60 percent he didn't do it 40 percent says hey you know there's there's enough evidence there to raise some doubt but the fact that he never wrote about it never mentioned it The fact that he was never prosecuted, the Bill Jordan we know as the gun writer. um, The fact that he went on and continued in gun... I mean, face it, if you and I had done something like that, I'd never want to touch another gun as long as I lived if I were responsible for that. That's just a bad thing. And these are all, these are very bad things. I don't ever want to see this, Ooh, you know, just the thought of that is just horrid. And I don't know that I would really, you know, it's not that I would be against guns, but I don't know I'd ever want to pick one of those up again. So I I don't really think he did it. If he did do it, my my copy of No Second Place Winner will probably wind up in a dumpster somewhere. That's all I can say about that. That is a strange case of Bill Jordan. Okay, that brings us to our favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers, and we will lead off with a question from our listener Justin and it says I've heard you talk about Swiss rifles and the Swedish 6.5 by 55 cartridge what do you think of the Swiss 7.5 by 55 cartridge and the K31 rifle and as an aside I occasionally find a K31 for sale but no ammo but I have found 6.5 by 55 ammo, but no rifles to shoot it in. So, he has just asked the most brilliant question that faces all gun owners and gun buyers today. And it has nothing to do with the Swiss rifles, actually, but the, the question is do you buy a gun that you don't have ammo for and probably can't get ammo for? Or it's going to have a very difficult time? Or. Unless you're willing to pay two or three dollars around, are, are you really willing to still buy that gun? Is it still good? I will say that, um, you know, when it comes to K31, it's a great rifle. Uh, first of all, the Swiss rifles are all very, very nice, manufactured to a very high standard. Um, they're great collectibles, great military rifles, interesting history behind them. Not really any wartime use, but, you know, Swiss things are interesting. So, they're they're very good rifles and very good shooters. If you like the Swiss rifle now is the time to buy it and I would the only advice I would give you is I would leverage the price I would say hey look bro there's no ammo for this there's no ammo for this so I'm I'm buying something I really can't use unless some ammo comes with it which is unlikely Um, I would use that as a way to kinda kinda drive a hard bargain and see how see how far that gets you that's just my advice on buying it the 7.5 by 55 round is great military round um, and and like great military rounds it, it would make a great sporting rifle round if you shot the right the right ammunition in it with soft point ammo but it's basically you know 308 class um, it's like the 7.5 french um, What's the other famous 7.5? Well, 7.5 French, 7.5 Swiss, they're they're just like 7.6 to 51 NATO. So it's it's a very, very good cartridge that way. Uh, there's gonna be no more imports of K31s like we've seen in the past where they dumped their stock of them. Uh, so the price is never going to be lower. Uh, it's not like there's a big cache of them out there that are just waiting to come in and can drive the price down. I feel pretty confident that we've seen the importations and so now it's all secondary market so if you want it buy it the 6.5 by 55 is a great cartridge Um, going back to the Norwegian crags and into the Swedish Mausers Uh, Swedish Mausers are still pretty affordable you can still find those um, you know around the $400 dollar mark and and again condition always trumps uh, what people say is the a fair price you know so an excellent pristine condition example is going to run a lot more than than something that's got a few dings on it so and you can get a variety of rifles in it and it's a standard bolt action standard mauser bolt action basically a mauser 96 um you know and they they made kind of short rifles the uh, model 38 pattern and then they had the longer rifles some of the rifles are very nice they've had uh adjustable sights put on them that was used for target competition uh, pretty nice uh, they're they're pretty nice rifles uh, again high standard of manufacture not a lot of rugged wartime use so you're not gonna get something that's that really trashed out so they're, they're they're good rifles both both are excellent choices um, but I think it's gonna be a while before we see a cornucopia of ammunition I mean I'm spoiled. I'm used to the the deal. I when I wanted 6.5 by 55, I would just go down to Cabela's and and they would have some PPU in there. Um, even PMC produced it at one time. So you know there was some there was there was some stuff out there, uh, but we haven't seen the surplus on that forever. Uh, and I think it's the uh, the Swiss surplus is about gone. Also the GP11, which was a good really good cartridge very accurate people like it and reloading the brass for 7.5 swiss the military brass the the swiss military brass is uh pretty hard i know some guys who've done it but you got to get berdan primers where you find those these days i don't know but um yeah they were berdan primed so that's a whole nother a whole nother uh issue of how to get the old primer out how to get the new primer in but thank you for a brilliant question because a lot of people are saying why you know you're and you're seeing it now um there may be record background checks but the gun stores i'm going to the inventories picked up quite a bit because people aren't going to buy guns that they don't have ammunition for and it goes back to what i was talking about the ammunition thing that's that's the linchpin or the long pole in the tent as they say is is ammunition but those are both excellent they're both excellent rifles both excellent calibers and uh, I really like the mechanics and all that of a straight pull rifle I think they're just cool It's it's that cool 19th century type of engineering that I find very appealing you know it's all about tolerances and cams and springs and you know kind of leveraging things. Uh, it's it's They're more complex than a than a regular bolt-action rifle. Are they actually faster? I don't know that they're if they are faster I don't know that it's I think that's pretty shooter dependent and I don't know that they're faster enough to make a real difference but they're certainly very intriguing. One of the uh, um, interesting parts is in the military matches I've been doing for the last it's almost seven years now uh, everybody expected that Swiss rifles would dominate because they were legal under our local club competition rules, and that has not been the case. It's still all about the shooter. It's still all about who who practices, who doesn't, the quality of the ammunition. Um, that's the those are the real determiners. The the Swiss everybody thought Swiss rifles and Swedish Mausers would be the the dueling at the top, and actually the rifle. That i have found that is consistently the best performer in that particular venue is the u.s model 1917 um it's sometimes it it shoots the high sometimes it wins but it's always in the top it's always in contention very consistently and and i there are some variables that may cause some of that too but it's a very very good performer and it is the equal of the swiss rifles the swedish rifles the mausers and the springfields it's, it's certainly the equal and i would say that some of its um attributes with the sites being large and easy to see are are probably very helpful okay next question if you could talk to any gun designer or gun writer from history who would it be that's an interesting question um but i think there's an easy there's an easy answer it would have to be Julian Hatcher, the guy who wrote Hatcher's Notebook and who wrote the Book of the Garand. Um, there's nobody out there currently that... that I think Mike Venturino is an interesting guy, a lot of interesting experience, probably be interesting to talk to. But I think he would learn more from Hatcher. Hatcher had that brilliant mix of practical plus a lot of technical knowledge. and It was really brilliant. And he covered not only sporting arms, but also the military arms that he was most familiar with and was an eyewitness to a lot of the things that, that went on. So he would be probably the most interesting one that I, that I would want to talk to. Okay, here's another one. What weapons won't you fire? Okay, that, that's interesting because I like firing a lot of different weapons. And I will say right offhand, okay, here's what I will not fire. Um, I won't fire anything with a live warhead, okay? So if it's got an explosive warhead on it, if it's an RPG-7 or some some sort of a thing, a law or some sort of a thing that's got a live warhead, I'm not firing it. I'm just not going to fire it. Uh, I'm out of that business now. I'm retired from that. So there's no need for me to do it. And, and frankly, I've already been there, done that and I also you know I kind of trust military ordinance and ordinance workers and the ammunition inspection process much more than I trust people who somehow come across this stuff and get the proper licensing and civilian life to have it um, I just trust the military side more so I think it's it's just safer and that's what I want to do so I do not want to fire anything with a live warhead uh, the other thing I don't want to fire is flame weapons uh, flamethrowers and all that I, other people fired them. i have fired the m202 flash um you know frankly flim weapons are terrifying to not only the people on the receiving end but the people on the firing end sometimes don't want any part of it just just don't want any part of it there's just nothing nothing there for me uh let's see uh the liberator pistol i don't want to fire it i mean um i'm not interested in it enough to fire it it's it's a Clutched together kind of guerrilla style weapon it was kind of a thing it you know to me there's nothing there uh as townsend whalen said only the accurate ones are interesting and i don't see where you get any accuracy out of a liberator pistol and i wouldn't the experience of it just doesn't seem to be worth it to me so so that's not uh not anything there uh okay cannons and artillery in private hands um most of that's probably safe, especially if it shoots a solid projectile. Um, but, you know, I just... Like I said, I've been there. I've done that. Uh, you know, and I go back to that. If you remember, there was a guy who had an M8 Hellcat, a tank destroyer, and the thing blew up and killed him and, and the guy who was his assistant gunner. And it turns out that the, you know, the gun ring, the the breech ring had been salvaged from another gun and all this. I mean, again, it kind of goes back to when the military sets that stuff up they do a lot of inspections and there's a lot of a lot of technical expertise that goes into it that civilian owners might not have so yeah forget it i don't really want to shoot some guy's tank cannon that he's pieced together if you know what i mean just just common sense tells me that's not the brightest thing in the world to do uh the other thing i don't really want to fire are very large caliber weapons um I've, I've fired enough 50 BMG in my life so that I don't need to do it anymore. Um, not just not that interested in it. It's it's a neat caliber, but you know a rifle that kicks you around. And I know that they say, oh my 50 caliber, you know, it's, I got I got the the whammo whiz break on it, and okay, but that's all fine. But I really don't want to shoot that. I really don't want to shoot a a late 20 millimeter cannon. I think these weapons are very cool. I just don't want to shoot them anymore. That just don't want to do it. Uh, Enzio Ordnance, if they're still around, they made a 20 millimeter cannon rifle, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of fun, but I don't really, I don't really need that. Um, same thing with, um, same thing with like elephant guns. I wouldn't shoot a 700 Nitro Express or the 959 JDJ or whatever that thing was that, you know, I I just don't need to do that. So, you know, you get to a certain age and you kind of worry about, Hey, is this going to dislodge a cornea or retina or something? You know, I mean, there's, it's not just machismo. It's at a certain point, uh, something that you are, that you think might have a, a possibility of injuring you and preventing you from doing what you really want to do. Uh, you kind of have to be selective about that. So those are things I won't fire. Okay, in the current ammo shortage situation, is a 45 better than a 9mm? This was asked to me by a guy who is a big 9mm man, and he's like, well, you know, now that you mention it, and you think about it, the big selling point of the 9mm, the thing that killed the 40 Smith & Wesson, or is killing the 40 Smith & Wesson, is that 9 millimeter you have this selection of this high performance ammo that is as good as a 40 it expands as well as a 45 but you get less recoil and more capacity well guess what in today's ammo market if you can get 9 millimeter it's probably going to be FMJ so you're back to square one you're back to welcome to 1904 or 1908 where the 9 millimeter comes out and it's guess what a full metal jacket bullet that's that's where you are, you're back 115 no 117 years, you're back 117 years. So, welcome to 1904. Uh, the 45, because largely it just shoots FMJ. Um, uh, you know, you can go buy, and, and you know, they want ungodly amounts of money for this stuff, but you can go buy if you can find it you know occasionally you see 45 I saw some in Cabela's over Christmas they had some boxes of 45 FMJ you can buy that and okay welcome to 1911 but you still have a 45 caliber that doesn't need to expand as opposed to a 9 millimeter which in full metal jacket the, the chance of it expanding is, is extremely remote if not impossible by the laws of physics as we know it so there has been a situation where a 45 has a material advantage a quantifiable material advantage over a nine millimeter where you can't slough it off by saying hey you know I just got better nine millimeter ammo so neener 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 it's as good as your 45 and less recoil more capacity all the rest so yes there are yes Virginia there is a good case for the uh, 45 next question do you keep round counts on your guns? And the answer is no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. Um, there's a reason for that. I don't shoot any one gun enough to wait to be wearing it out. I just, I just don't. And I never, I never did that round counts when I started shooting. Nobody ever would have thought of round counts. Um, most people did it the way kind of the military does it and the way i was trained to do it military doesn't keep round counts if they don't keep round counts why should you uh maybe the amu does maybe those guys do maybe it's maybe the high-end um tier one snipers and all that maybe they keep round counts on their equipment but the the regular military does not and uh for for small arms anyway they, they might for tanks and all that but um, I think what they actually do is the military has always been into inspecting. And that's why you had those gauges, muzzle wear gauge, throat erosion gauge. Those were the important things. Not trying to be an accountant and keep track of how many, how many thousands of rounds. Because all the round count does for you is say, well, hey, conventional wisdom says that at 10,000 rounds, this barrel is probably toast. Well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. And you could certainly replace it on that. But what the military solution would be to to gauge the barrel and see if it's still serviceable, see if it falls within their acceptable guidelines. And if it does, they'll continue to use it until such time it does not. So there you go. That's why I don't keep round counts. Plus, the fact, he, just the mathematics and, and the mechanism and all that is just it's just a lot of it's just a big pain in the butt. So I don't do it. That's just that's just the way it goes. Okay, what is the best caliber for a black powder cartridge rifle? Hey, we talked about this once before. I had this question, a similar one to it once before. If you're getting into black powder cartridge rifle, get into 4570, even though it's the most common and most boring and pedestrian of those cartridges. For your first rifle, get a 4570. You can still, you know, in, in normal times you can get brass, you can get bullets. Unlike the exotic rounds, you know, 45120 or 110 or or you know, even 4590. It's it's you can get brass anywhere. Um, the main major, major manufacturers still make it. They still make some some lead bullet loads. You can buy lead bullets from a variety of sources that are that are designed for black powder cartridge rifles. You can do all that, and it's a it's a lot more trouble free than having the cool exotic caliber. That's that's a lot more trouble. So 4570 is a way to go. And as you if you really get into it, and you buy additional rifles, then buy the cat buy the other calibers. You know by all means but 4570 is a great place to start and if you decide hey this is as far as I want to go hey you've got a great trouble-free solution that performs well and if it's something you want to get out of it's going to be a lot easier to sell a 4570 than it is something that you know um, 4090 or something you know or 4075 or some of these other other um, less well-known and more exotic cartridges okay do you believe in hyper-velocity cartridges? And the hyper-velocity cartridges they were talking about were the like the Fort Scott um, munitions where they, they have the all-bronze or all-copper bullet, which is very, very light, and it moves out at a very, very high rate of speed. Do I believe in those? And, well, the Fort Scott ones I like because they shoot point of aim that you, you would think, the fear I always have with these things, is that they're going to, you know, be shooting four feet high or something, or way off to the left because of some weird dynamic with the barrel, or, or is there going to be some kind of stability issue because they're so much lighter, and, you know, is the design really compatible with the rifling in the, in the pistol, but Fort Scott got it right, and their munitions are, are very, very good, and they shoot, and they're, they're accurate, they, they group very accurately, um, my Star BKM just shoots them right up. It's great. It's a great round for that. So I, I do think that there is a good place for them. I think they're cool and I, I like them. Um, the cost is, of course, prohibitive. And I don't even know if you can find it now. It's one of those things that, hey, you get used to it. But, you know, if all I can buy is Toll Ammo, then that's what I'm going to shoot. And that's what I'm going to carry. You know, I'm not sure I'm going to... Carry something I don't shoot, so you know at least I have a known and practice with the tall ammo. So the the hypervelocity stuff, I'm afraid that's a function of the market and the market being able to support that kind of a niche loading for the cartridge. Okay, what the last question? Our last question. We're kind of going a little long this time, but that's okay. Why do you podcast? And I thought that was an interesting question because I I never really have given it a, a defined, granular answer as to why I do this. But I can I can tell you um, just kind of kind of from the uh, uh, top of my head here. Um, the reason I decided to start a podcast was. I was listening to content both on YouTube and in other podcasts that I thought was childish, misleading, and and just flat-out wrong. Um, And I'll start with podcasts. I I listen to a few other podcasts. Most of them have multiple hosts, and a lot of them are younger. So it turns into this millennial bromance thing that, you know... All of a sudden they're talking about popcorn all of a sudden they're talking about this and they're bleeping out the f-word the f-bombs and all the rest of it uh the the gun content wasn't there or it's this 2a culture war stuff that just goes on and on and on and uh i don't think any of that's bad but it just wasn't what i was looking for um the stuff on the stuff on youtube Outside of the very technical things people do, um, most of it is horrible. And and what pushed me into podcasting, what pushed me into it was, I was watching one of these things, and this, this guy was a grade-A moron. And so he, he was talking about how much he hates, hates the M14 rifle because it prevented us from having the FNFAL in 1958. And I, I just sat there and I said, you know, the guy actually has some, there are some points that you could make in that argument, but this guy's not making them. And he's coming across as an uninformed, uh, basically an ignoramus. You know, the guy was an ignoramus. He, he just didn't come across with command of any kind of facts or any kind of logic that would support these these dopey statements he was he was saying and then he was he was talking about you know people he knew nothing about the guys who were in charge of the ordinance department and how the fix was in and all the rest of it a lot of that stuff you see in the in some of those older books that, that were written about you know the trials and all that and and of course i know a, a better story a better truer story and the better truer story, which I've covered on this podcast, but to give you the 32nd version, because we are running late, is that uh, you know the, the United States was never going to adopt anything other than a product improved Garand, based on the Garand's performance in World War II and Korea, and based on the fact that we had millions of Garands on hand that would go into storage for World War III, should it come out, and that most of our manpower, our military manpower in 1958 were World War II and Korean veterans and e- those eras of veterans that were all trained on the grand system. So you're not going to adopt another system to complicate that. These were guys who, you're going to bring them if you're mobilizing for World War Three, and nobody really knows what that looks like in the 50s before missiles took over you're going to have a huge number of guys come in and every hour is going to be precious. So I can train somebody who knows the Garand. I can basically get him back up to speed on the Garand in really 30 minutes to an hour at the most. You can. They just they they were trained in it. They a lot of them probably used it in combat. Maybe even know it better than the people who would be bringing them up to speed. Some people forgot. Some people have uh, you know probably never were truck drivers or something else and didn't handle weapons very much, but they could be trained, they could be refamiliarized with that weapon. If you were issuing them M14s, the transition between the Garand and the M14 is very, very simple. Very, very simple. Um, it operates in some ways, like logically anyway, like an M1 carbine. You know, detachable magazine, rotating bolt, all the controls are fundamentally in the same place. You know it, it's it's enough like the, the m1 carbine is enough like the m14 that that people could catch on people look at it and say oh yeah i could figure out how that works so that's why i was done um the fal was examined but there was never there was never a there was never an agreement saying that we're going to hold a trial and the winner of the trial is what we adopt they were just holding a comparative examination of rifles. And you know, they used it. They said, hey, if this rifle can do this. Our rifle needs to be able to do the same thing. And so it, it actually was, it produced, it helped produce a better rifle by having it compared against the FAL. So those are that's the real reason. And to go back to what I'm actually talking about, this guy had no clue of any of that. He couldn't understand it. He didn't understand the times that this decision was made, why it made sense, and the time that it was made. And it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense. Now, I happen to believe that General Jacob Devers was correct. Devers was a guy who developed a bunch of our World War II weapons, okay, responsible for that development. Uh, they were going to send 37-millimeter tanks overseas, and he said, no, no, we we need to do the M4 Sherman It may not be perfect, but it's going to be better than that. He was also the guy who said, we need to be sending the brand new M26 Pershings over in D-Day because they're going to come up against some German tanks and other things that that the Shermans are going to have a hard time handling. Turned out he was right. When he looked at the M14, he looked at it and said, this is obsolete. This is obsolescent. He said obsolescent. I misstated obsolete. But he said, this is obsolescent. The AR-15 is the way to go. Now, he was also working for Fairchild Aircraft, which had developed the AR-15. But that really doesn't take away from the fact that he was right. And in fact, it was borne out that he was correct. And a few years later, the M-16, as the AR-15 became, uh, would eventually replace the M-14 for general use. Doesn't mean the M-14 wasn't a fine rifle within its design parameters because it was and it is and 62 years later it's still in use it is still in use by US forces so hey you know it it was pretty good weapon but for general issue weapon for the kind of weapon we needed for the kind of weapon that would be best suited for future warfare the AR-15 was the best so I, I don't think that the FAL even if you critically, any critical thinking would say adopting the FAL in 58 would have been just another dead, it would have been the dead end that the M14 was. The M14 was a dead end. It it went so far and then couldn't go any farther. It could not go any farther. I would I would argue with you that the, the rifle had everything been just a straight competition and everything. The rifle that would have been adopted eventually would have been the AR-10 because it was it had attributes to it that, of both the uh, M14 in caliber and the AR-15 in handling, uh, it would have been a it would have been something they probably would have adopted. But even later, that would have been the small caliber would have come in, and and uh, intermediate cartridge would have replaced it. So that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. Uh, You can always leave comments on Podbean in our comments section, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, and we'll do our best to answer them. And uh, I hope you can find some ammunition, but until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.